word too about the uh, parenting training. So Mary and I volunteered to watch kids. So I didn't. I don't have authorization to say this, but everybody who wants to go, just drop your kids off at our house. I can't guarantee what condition they'll be in when you get them back, but the offer's out there. Okay, no reason not to go get parenting training. <laughs> If you have a Bible with you, please turn in it to page 1, Genesis chapter 1. We're in a sermon series where we're interacting with the thinking and the practices of our culture on several issues, and we're seeking to discern what God has to say about those things. We're discerning His good and perfect will. So last week we talked about gender identity. That deals with the question of who am I? And the answer from God's Word is that we are created by God in His image as either male or female and not something else. Today we're going to talk about gender norms, which deals with the question, what is a male or a female supposed to be like? Do we have any responsibilities to fulfill? Is there anything you should or should not do because you are a man or a woman? In our current cultural mindset of you do you, the very idea that men should be one way and women should be another way is considered sexist. True equality of men and women will only happen when gender plays no role at all in what you do with your life. That's the thinking of our current moment in uh, time here. But the God who created us has something else to say about this. He didn't simply create us as male and female for no reason. He has a design for two genders. That are There are postures He wants us to take, things that He wants us to do. They overlap, but there's also differences. And we're going to see that these gender norms point to something greater than us, they point to the story of God's redemption in Jesus Christ. So our starting point, as in previous weeks, is going to be Genesis chapter 1. We go back to the account of the creation of male and female. So we're going to read Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and then dip into 31, and then we'll pray. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Verse 31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, our Father, you are very good. We want to start out with that acknowledgement. You're the source of it. You're the definition of it. But not everything that you say automatically feels good to us. And so we need your assistance this morning. We need the Holy Spirit 
to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive from you your good designs for us and to walk in your good ways, to be transformed more and more into your likeness. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When God saw everything that he had made, including male and female, he said, it is very good. It is very good to be a male or a female. But why is it very good? We're going to see this morning that the goodness lies in what we have in common equally as male or female and what is different between us the gender norms that are in God's mind as our creator. So let's see what God's word has to say about that and make application along the way. The first thing we have to start with is the thing that's very good about us is our equality between men and women, boys and girls, male and female. There's equality. What we have in common is we are created in God's image. Verse 27, God created man in his own image, Male and female, he created them. That's our fundamental dignity, that we are equally created in the image of God. We are the crown of God's creation, created to know and to worship and to walk with God in loving relation. Nothing else was made to do that in all of the universe, and we talked about that in previous messages. But we are also equal in another way, which is in the assignment God has given us on earth. He has given us great things to do. And it can boil it down to three things. And the first of them, which is described here in verse 28, is what we call the creation mandate. There's a mandate, there's a, there's a command, there's a task God gave to male and female in the beginning. He said to the woman and to the man, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all the living creatures. In other words, populate the earth, harness the potential of its resources in, its, in creative in, in inventions and activities and manage well the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom, the world itself. And do all of that after the likeness of the one in whose image you are. Do it as a representative of God. And all of us, male and female, are to play a part in doing that. But what does it look like? Well, the obvious starting point is, if you're going to fill the earth means you're going to have babies, you're going to have families, you're going to reproduce, you're going to have generations of people. So mothers and fathers get used by God to bring more image bearers into the world and to train them up to know their creator. That's where this starts. That, that's a vocation. There's no vocation better than to raise up the very people that God has created fearfully and wonderfully and and make them see their creator and hopefully love him and walk in his ways. That is by itself an amazing vocation. But it isn't the only one. If you have a mind for science and engineering, (laughs) then get your degree and discover things and invent things and build things. If that's how God's gifted you, talented you. 
If you have a mind for healing people or animals, <laughs> become a doctor or nurse, become a vet. If you have the opportunity, go do it. If you have creative talents, then paint and draw and sculpt and play music and write novels and all these things that are for our, our daily edification and so on. That's all part of our creation mandate, and it's given to both men and women. Males and females share in this high calling to fill the earth and subdue it. Let me make one point before we move on. We probably all have ideas about what is man's work and what is woman's work. And those ideas change over time, and they have changed. For example, when I was a kid, all doctors were men and all nurses were women. It's the same field. It's still healthcare. And yet there was this barrier. There was just some reason that like, all, only guys could be doctors and only women could be nurses. And uh, I wonder, where did that actually come from? Um, because it seemed like it would just totally be wrong if you, if you switched those two things around. Your motives were suspect. But where did it actually come from? If it didn't actually come from a principle in Scripture, then it was just tradition, and it didn't need to be that way. The point I want to make here is we can't give tradition the authority of Scripture when we talk about what men and women can do. When it comes to the creation mandate to fill the earth and subdue it, if a male or a female has the talent to do something, the right motives to do it, the opportunity to do it, and the task itself isn't contrary to God's will, then by all means, pursue that occupation. It's part of what God has made you to do. So the creation mandate was given to men and women. That's part of our equality. But moving beyond Genesis to the rest of the Bible, we have two other things that are, are part of our assignment, our God's call on our lives. The first is the great commandment. Luke 10, 27, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and with your neighbor as yourself. This is what men and women, boys and girls, are to do. We all have the privilege of cultivating our relationship with our Creator, with God Himself. To love Him, to, to know Him, to pray and to meditate on His Word and, and to have fellowship with Him and worship Him. We all have that privilege and that calling on our lives. And we have the privilege of doing all the things that Jesus commended in the parable of the sheep and the goats, the loving your neighbor part. In Matthew 25, 35 to 36, he said, I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. I was a safe family's family, and you ministered to me. That's loving our neighbor. We're all called to be a part of that. Sixteen different people, men and women, all gathering around this one family to introduce them to the community that Christ creates and where the hope is. we all called to that. We're also called to the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. 
We all play a part, male and female, in bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world and making disciples. In Philippians 4.3, Paul mentions women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul had both women and men laboring with him for the sake of the gospel. Now, he doesn't necessarily specify the exact work that these men and women were doing, and we'll have more to say about that later. But the fact remains that men and women are in this great commission together to bring the gospel to the world, to see people rescued from darkness and into light by Jesus, who alone can save us from our sins. That's our starting point when we talk about gender norms. We are equally God's image bearers, and we've been given great things to do, things that can only be done by men and women as the crown of God's creation. Our lives are significant and filled with purpose. But will we do these things exactly in the same way? (laughs) No. And that leads to the next point, our differences. Again, verse 27, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God has created two genders that will be like a duet of two people singing the same song, but noticeably different voices and with different parts. There's a difference, but there's harmony. The difference is intended to fit together, to complement each other. And that is where we get the name complementarianism to describe the difference in the genders. I hesitated to use that word, not just because it's a big, long word, but also because that word brings up the feeling for some people that you get when you reach into the back of your fridge and find some old container of leftovers. You're afraid to open it because it'll probably smell bad and you don't know if there's anything in there to salvage. And some people think about this idea of complementarianism that way. You had a bad teaching on this. You had bad examples under the guise of complementarian position. And the temptation is throw out the whole thing like the old leftovers. If that's you, my only request is remember the first two messages in the series. If you hear something you don't like, don't cancel me and then tune out everything else. (laughs) And then do what the Bereans did in Acts 17. They examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Because the word of God is the authority, not me. So that's all I'm asking for. There might be others who consider themselves complementarians, but it's more of an inherited assumption, not a doctrinal conviction. And your ideas of what it looks like for men and women to be equal but different may be governed more by tradition than by the Bible. I hope to speak to both of those situations as well as to those who have no clue what I'm talking about right now. (laughs) Let's talk about the differences between men and women and especially why those differences exist. First of all, let's just confirm there is a difference. It's observable. I watched the uh, 4x100 mixed medley relay in the Summer Olympics, the last Summer Olympics. It's a swimming event. 
I think it was the very first event where both men and women were in the same event at the same time competing against each other. So the race started out with eight lanes, four women and four men. And, you know, the starting gun goes off. By 50 meters, every guy in the pool was ahead of every girl in the pool. By 100 meters, that, that gap increased. That's a controlled experiment. You take the most insanely fit men and women on the planet, and you put them in the same pool together, the guys win. Because they're built differently. There's a strength there. There's an anatomy that lends itself to greater speed, greater strength, and all of that. It's observable that there's a difference. There are lots of those kinds of things that are different. There's a difference in strength on average. All these Zerups who go with us to uh, Rancho 3M and work for, with us, like, they could kick your butt. Like, <laughs> they're strong. <laughs> but on average, we know there's a difference, right? There's a difference in anatomy. Only women can bear children. Also, men and women think and feel things differently. Any married couple knows this. Do I hear an amen? <laughs> Even a man who feels like he's a woman is admitting that there's a way that women feel and think. There is a difference. And our difference is not just that we have male and female bodies. The difference is there is also a thing called maleness or femaleness, masculinity and femininity. There are attributes that go along with being created as male or female. That's why you have a command like 1 Corinthians 16, 13, act like men, be strong. That command assumes there's a way that men act, and it involves strength. Or 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters in all purity. That assumes you treat younger men differently than you treat younger women. There's a brotherly way to treat young men. There's a sisterly way to treat young ladies. And there are other commands like this that just acknowledge males and females are different and should be treated differently, at least in some respects. And furthermore, this difference is complementary, meaning these two genders correspond to one another. They are interdependent. We might say that they, they pair well together. They fit together. You see that in the description of God's creation of the woman in Genesis 2, 18 to 23. God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him, a helper corresponding to him, a helper who completes the picture that God wanted to paint when he said, let us make man in our image, in the image of God. He made them male and female. We see this complementary nature of male and female, this interdependence in statements like 1 Corinthians 11, 11 to 12, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is, all, is now born of woman, and all things are from God. There's interdependence there, a God-ordained interdependence between the male and the female. 
But we need to ask the question at this point, why? Why did God set it up this way? Why did he make image bearers in two versions, a male and a female, who are different but complementary to each other? What's the meaning of this? Was it just so they could reproduce and have babies? Well, that is a reality, (laughs) but that by itself doesn't explain the two genders because God could have created humans in a different way. He could have made us capable of having babies without a mate. Some living creatures like reptiles can do that. It's called parthenogenesis. They can reproduce by themselves. But God didn't make us like that, so why didn't he? What is the purpose of our fittedness, our complementary nature? Well, the place where we see it most clearly, the reason, is in the marriage relationship, which we will also see has echoes in the human experience outside of marriage. But listen to Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The text says God made male and female to provide a picture of the complementary union of Jesus Christ and the church. There is to be something about the way man is and what he does and the way the woman is and what she does that points to this ultimate pairing, which is the union between the Savior and all those who are saved by his death on the cross. Human history is bracketed by two marriages. The marriage of the first man and woman in Genesis 1 and 2, and the marriage of the Lamb to the church in Revelation 19. The first marriage and every marriage between a male and a female points to the ultimate marriage of Jesus and the church. The great climax of all history is moving toward the end for which God created the world, which is to have all these people redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, joining Him in a perfect world, their sins forgiven, their bodies transformed, to be with God forever. That's where everything is going. That's how history ends and continues forever for those who know Christ. Human marriage points to that marriage. And human marriage requires a male and a female, each one living according to their different gender norms appointed by God. That is why we have two genders. It ultimately is to point to the gospel by which sinful humanity is brought into joyful relationship with God. Now, marriage is the primary human relationship in which we see this play out. We'll come back to that in a moment, but that doesn't make gender irrelevant outside of marriage. Because each of us is called to live according to our God-given complementarity, whether in marriage or in the church or in the world. Our postures and our pursuits as male and female, our gender norms, are either going to point toward or away from this divine complementarity of Christ and His church. Our maleness and femaleness is bigger than ourselves. It's about pointing to the story of redemption. 
And it is really important that we ground our ideas about gender norms in that cosmic reality. Because if we don't, then the commands about marriage and about the church and about our postures in the world won't make any sense at all. For example, commands like, wives, submit to your own husbands, or I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man in the church, those will be incomprehensible. Why on earth should a woman submit to a fallible man? <laughs> and she can't teach a man in a church setting? You must be out of your mind. Women are equal to men. Women are smart. Women are capable and competent and gifted to teach and to lead. These restrictions make no sense at all if it's just a matter of equality and gifting and competence between the sexes but it's bigger than that. It isn't about our equality or our competence. It is about God-ordained purposes for our lives to show the world the reality of Christ and the church. That's what's at stake in abolishing God-ordained gender distinctions. If we care about the gospel, we will care about living in a manner that points to it. And that means aligning ourselves with the gender norms that God has created in a marriage or in a church or in the world. So let's go there. <laughs> let's talk about gender norms in marriage and then the church and then the world. There's no way we can say everything that needs to be said in the time we have. <laughs> and I'll tell you, I wrestled with this. This is why this took so long to prepare, because I kept wanting to say this, and I got to say that. We're just going to walk through some of the major points, which are also the controversial flashpoints about this topic of gender norms. We'll start with marriage. I'll summarize it this way. A husband exercises sacrificial leadership to protect and provide for his wife. A husband exercises sacrificial leadership to protect and provide for his wife. And a wife follows her husband's leadership by helping and respecting him. A wife follows her husband's leadership by helping and respecting him. We get this from Ephesians 5, among other places. I'll read verses 22 to 28. Wives... Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, this is what you don't hear in that paragraph. 
you don't hear, husbands, treat your wives like servants whom you call when you need something. You don't hear, husbands, tell your wives to submit to you. You don't hear, husbands, take charge, and if your wives have a problem with that, it must be because they're weak. You don't hear that. This is what you do here. Husbands, love your wives. Like Jesus loved the church by giving up his life for her. Make sacrifices for her welfare. Be ready to give up your comforts, your preferences, your money, your time, your pride. Whatever it takes for her to experience and grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. And make sure she's taken care of, physically and spiritually. Wash her with the word. Be a spiritual leader who leads her to Christ, who is her Savior. In other words, be a husband who's worthy of being followed and submitted to and respected. I don't think there would be so much opposition to headship and submission in marriage if all husbands treated their wives like that. When I read the material of what is called the egalitarian position, part of the energy behind it is because of bad examples of husbands who don't lead sacrificially like Christ. But when the husbands lovingly lead like Christ, it is a beautiful thing. It is life-giving. This paragraph also speaks to wives. This is what you don't hear, and this is what you do hear. You don't hear, submit to all men everywhere. You don't have to. Here's what you hear, submit to your own husbands, to him, that, that one the one who's in a covenant with you. You don't hear, submit to your husband even when he is leading you into sin. You hear, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Your ultimate submission is to the Lord, and if your husband wants you to sin, then you must say no. And if he is in sin, you can point that out. Like Moses' wife Zipporah. Here's Moses in Exodus chapter 4. He's the giver of the law. He hasn't even circumcised his own son. The sign of the covenant. His wife deals with it. <laughs> Does the circumcision. Throws the foreskin at his feet. You are a bridegroom of blood to me. And she saved his life because it said the Lord was preparing to, to kill him. You can do that. <laughs> Look out, guys. <laughs> okay, I'm going to qualify that with the next thing. You do hear wives submit to your own husbands. And in verse 31, which I didn't read, you hear, let the wife see that she respects her husband. Submission, even, even when you have to confront him on something, still involves respect. There's a way to do that well. And going back to Genesis 2, 
We also heard that God made you a helper fit for him. Helper, supporting, helping him to, to, to do his job, to lead well. That is also appropriate. All that to say, wives, make your demeanor a fitting illustration of how the church trusts, respects, and follows Christ. That's your gender norm as a wife. Is he a sinner? Is he sometimes hard to live with? Yes, because he's not Christ. <laughs> and yet you can still help him and show respect to him. Much more could be said. Let's move on to the realm of the church. Do the gender norms in marriage have any bearing on gender norms for males and females in the church community? Yes, they do, though not with the identical level of responsibility as in marriage. There is a connection between the human family in marriage and the family of God, which is the church. Here's one place we see it. In 1 Timothy 3, 4 and 5, Paul gives requirements for elders, for the pastors of the church, and this is one of those requirements. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? This requirement means the leadership in the home is the proving ground for leadership in the church. If you can't manage your family household, how can you manage God's household? Why? Because both are covenantal communities created by God that point to the gospel. A marriage is established by a covenant till death do us part. The church is also established by a covenant and is even a better one because it is still in force after death. It's the new covenant in Christ's blood. It's the covenant that God makes with his people saying, you will be mine forever because of Christ's death for you. And we remember that when we take communion together. Both households have the same creator and point to the same cosmic significance of the gospel. And that's why, as in the home, the male is the leader in the church. God has entrusted men to be the pastors who must lead sacrificially and for the protection and provision of Christ's bride, the church. And that's the background behind that controversial passage of 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. If we didn't have the greater context of our assigned roles as male and female in the drama of redemption, that command would make no sense at all. It is offensive, in fact. But in context, it makes sense. This is about preserving the God-given establishment of male and female complementarity so as not to confuse the gospel, but to point to it. In the church, the male pastor has the responsibility to lead, feed, and protect the flock like a husband does for his wife, like Jesus does for his church. And females who will be gospel workers in their own right, nevertheless, will have an attitude of coming as a learner, yes, with a demeanor of submissiveness, like a wife to her husband, like the church to Christ. 
in context, 1 Timothy 2 doesn't mean a woman says nothing at all in the church. It uses the word silent. But it can't mean you never say anything because women are encouraged to prophesy in 1 Corinthians 11. You can sing in the church, you can have fellowship in the church, and so on. It's just a manifestation of gender norms that point to the gospel. This is not about women being passive. It's about modeling the church's submission to Christ. Again, lots more to be said about that. Let's move on to the world. (laughs) Does God have any expectations for how we live out our genders in our careers, in the marketplace, and so on? Yes, He does. And that's because our gender doesn't become irrelevant outside marriage and outside the church. Yes, it will look different in the world because we're no longer talking about the covenant households of the family and the church where we have these clearly defined responsibilities for the male and female. But God-ordained gender norms that point to the gospel are still there. They are part of our identity wherever we go. For example, the command to act like men be strong. That doesn't become a non-issue once you leave the church building. Like, now I don't have to act that way. Now I can act any way I want. Well, wait a minute. Not if that's a God-ordained part of you. It's a way of life. You are on the inside of a church building what you should be on the outside of the church building. It's about godly character. It's about masculine character in God's image, something we practice in all of life. That means, guys, single or married, you can look for opportunities to take initiative, to sacrifice for others, to honor women as fellow image bearers and protect them and provide for them as appropriate to the kind of relationships that exist. It doesn't make you their pastor or their husband. It just means you are functioning as a male image bearer should. I know it's not uncommon to think, well, that's an insult if a guy opens a door for a woman or if he carries something heavy for her or if he rushes to her protection if she's threatened. It seems like, well, you're communicating that women are so helpless and they need a male savior to come and get them. But it's the world that gives those actions that kind of meaning, not Scripture. It's right for a man to use his strength and his initiative to show the value and dignity of a woman's life by his actions. Women also have gendered commands that apply outside marriage in the church. You don't need to be married to fulfill your calling in life, to point to God in the gospel through your demeanor and through your actions. One example is 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. This isn't an instruction just for married women. It's not just for the church context. It's about what kind of character a woman has and what the bride of Christ is to be like what saved people are to be like in relationship with their Savior. And that means we don't draw attention to ourselves by our personal appearance, but we draw attention to Christ by our good works in His name. Like Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others 
so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There are ways that a woman can follow worthy and appropriate male leadership out in the world to help and respect men, even if you are in a position of authority over men which some will be. You might be the CEO of a company. You might be a teacher in a college. But even in that position of authority, there can be a demeanor about it which doesn't flaunt the position and revel in the opportunity to be in charge because we're not in a church and we're not in a marriage. What governs the moment is not the position you hold, but how the position holds you. Do you bear God's image well? as a female in that moment, in that setting. God would have us cultivate gender norms that he assigned to us as male and female, made in his image. It carries over into all of life. It's part of our identity. Okay, this has gotten long, so I'm going to close with three very brief points of application. Number one, our discipleship can't be all gender neutral. In other words, we have to include teaching on what it means to be a man or a woman in the image of God. Yes, we, we need to all learn to be like Jesus. Absolutely. That's the goal of discipleship. But if we never talk about what it looks like to follow Jesus as a man or as a woman, as a boy or as a girl, we won't, we won't fulfill all that God intended when he made us in two genders. There is a male version of imaging forth God. There is a female version of it. There is a female version of walking with Christ and being like Christ and a male version of it that has to be part of what we teach. It doesn't mean we're going to spend a half a year teaching on Titus 2. Some of you would were here a long time ago. You'd probably get that. It doesn't mean we'll always be talking about gender, but it has to be part of the package because if we don't get our convictions from the Bible, we will get them from the world. The world is teaching us every single day what it looks like to be a male or female. But it's not the right story. It's not the beautiful story. God's is. So we want to be more intentional about that in the future as soon as we have a clear plan in place. Second point of application, we want to find more ways to include women in our church gatherings. What I mean by that is the contribution of women as co-laborers for the gospel and fellow image bearers should be more visible on Sundays. Since mostly guys are up here talking, you might think that everything that happens from the front is a pastoral thing or something reserved for men, but it isn't. Some things are reserved for pastors and men, no, no question. But there's no reason not to have testimonies or scripture readings or prayers or reports from women like Alyssa gave us this morning. Women are equal partners in the gospel, and we want to do a better job of finding appropriate avenues for their contribution to be seen and heard. So just know that's a goal for us. We appreciate your patience as we're working that out. <laughs> one last application don't be ashamed of God's complementary design of male and female don't be ashamed of it I'll say it this way if you are not ashamed of the gospel then you shouldn't be ashamed of God's gender norms for male and female 
Because those gender norms were created to point to the gospel. And because they do, more is at stake in how we think and act as male and female. More is at stake than just who gets to lead and who has to submit. There is much more at stake than that. What's at stake is whether we will provide the culture with a reason to think that there's something better than you do you. And there is something better. There's something that's very good. And God has provided it in the Savior Jesus Christ, who has come to this world to claim his bride, everyone who puts their trust in him, to bring bring a bride into this eternally great marriage. That's our hope, and that's what the world was created for, to get to that. And that's reflected in how men and women treat each other. So we are not ashamed of the gospel Therefore, we should not be ashamed of the complementary nature of God's design for men and women either. May the Lord help us to bear His image well as male or female. Let's pray. Oh God, help us to see and feel and enjoy the good of Your design. There's nothing to be ashamed of in what You make. It is very good. But we have pressure, and we have people teaching us and telling us different things. And we've got history, we've got baggage, some of us, and it's really hard to go there. So help us, Lord, to embrace all that you, and cre- you created us to be and the joy that awaits as we do it. Thank you, Lord, for showing us your, your beauty today. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.